There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a group of independent, climate-engaged podcasters from Australia and New Zealand. No normal intro this week, as it needs an update, because I'm no longer on the lands of Tamaki Makoto, Aotearoa, New Zealand, but back in Narm, Melbourne, Australia. This week I was going to take a couple minutes to talk about how grateful I am to be back in Melbourne, to be reconnected with the people I've met here, to be plugged back into the amazing climate community, and I am that. I am grateful. I am so happy to be back. But world events have overtaken that, and instead, I want to quickly take a moment to say how grateful I am and how much I appreciate our democracy. Because of world events, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because of a return to war on the European continent, I thought it seemed a very good time to talk not only climate, but politics. And with an Australian federal election looming, even though it hasn't yet been called, I thought this would be a great time to share some content from Climate 200. Now, I understand that many of you listening are green supporters or you've been active in climate engagement for many years, and you might have mixed feelings, potentially, about Climate 200, a new group, a new entrant, trying to mark its territory in the Australian political landscape. But if you do have mixed feelings about Climate 200 or you're not sure how you feel, then I really recommend and and ask that you listen to this episode with an open mind. You give it a chance. It's not only beautifully produced with a great interviewer, but it gives these candidates a chance to explain themselves in their own words and talk about why they're running and why now is the time for potentially independent senators to sway the balance of power in the Australian government. So this particular episode is with Zoe Daniels, who's the candidate for Voices for Goldstein, uh, which is mainly centered around the Bayside suburb of Melbourne which, as I record this, is where I'm at, having moved back just a week ago. I'd love to know what you think. I'd love to know what your impression of Climate 200 is, uh, where you think it fits into the Australian political landscape, and how you want, potentially, this federal election to go. You can reach me, as always, at hello at climactic.fm. And coming soon, a new climactic intro, which reflects where in the world I'm located, acting as the publisher of Climactic from. So watch this space for a lot of cool stuff happening this year on the Climactic Collective. And for our listeners from or with family in Ukraine, we're thinking of you. If there's anything we can do to help, please let us know. And we hope you stay safe. All right. Enjoy. A lot of my reporting life has been tied to natural disasters, I have covered bushfires, floods, cyclones, typhoons, hurricanes on several continents. I've been to the Arctic. I've seen direct impact of climate change. 
and perhaps it's as recent as 2019 when I went to northern Alaska and saw for myself the melting permafrost and the change in fish species, for example, that the local Indigenous community have relied on for generations that's happening because of the warming ocean, the the lack of sea ice, all those sorts of things. And I think the whole conversation about polar bears feels quite esoteric to a lot of people, but it doesn't feel esoteric to me because I've seen it. That's Zoe Daniel, candidate for the Melbourne electorate of Goldstein. And this is The Independence, a podcast of Climate 200. I'm Gretchen Miller, and in this series, we're meeting up with some smart and savvy people working from the ground up to create a seismic shift in Australian politics as we know it. They're the independent candidates standing on platforms of climate action and its intrinsic economic opportunities, alongside a demand for renewed political integrity and accountability. You may well already know Zoe from her work at the ABC. She's had a stellar career, bringing the world to Australian audiences. Her stories come from the front line of conflict, war, poverty and economic collapse. But she's also told personal stories of refugees and presidents, of despots and rebels. The latest of her books is called Greetings from Trumpland. Since leaving the ABC, Zoe's advised business and community leaders on strategic thinking, on risk and emergency management. It's a phenomenally windy day when we meet at Greenpoint, Brighton, on Bunurong land. Hello. Very windy. Isn't it wild? So I jump into Zoe's car to say hello. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? So this is the bay. So right in front of us is the city, and this is sort of the most iconic viewpoint close to town. And you can see the beach boxes on Dendy Beach on the right, and they're historic beach boxes, obviously, and very expensive real estate. But unfortunately, there's a lot of beach erosion going on on Dendy Beach, so there's substantial sandbagging to try to protect the boxes from the beach literally washing away. And so it does cause great concern. And one thing that it's exposed is the sort of lack of any cohesive strategy around dealing with these issues and the fact that you've got all sorts of local and state government organisations particularly that are quite fragmented trying to work together to deal with these things. When did you first connect with the Australian natural environment? Were you young when you first went, this place matters to me? Or did you get more of a sense of the uniqueness of Australia when you were being a foreign correspondent? Well, I think it's both. I grew up in Tasmania and I was a horse riding kid. So I spent a lot of time out in the Tassie bush on my own. And it was a different era, 70s and 80s. Kids were much less supervised by their parents and adults. So it was a really formative experience for me to have ponies and be dropped off at the paddock at seven or eight in the morning and picked up at five or six pm and be left to my own devices and you know made some lifelong friendships through that but also learnt a lot about myself and became quite resilient and self-reliant and learnt a lot of problem solving skills and no mobile phones and you know if you fell off the pony and the pony 
bolted back to the stables. You had to walk home or double dink on someone else's horse. And if the fence was broken, you had to fix it and all those sorts of things. So there was a lot of life skills learnt through that, but also just a love of the outdoors. And that became quite innate, I think, because horse riding was really pervaded my life from probably when I was five or six until I went off to university. Actually, that's really interesting because when you're on a horse, you're super alert to what's around you because you're alert to what might startle the horse too, right? Yeah, you're aware of your your surroundings and the the various influences on the, the animal that you're riding, but also it can be quite a mindful experience to just immerse yourself in the countryside if you like and I I taught kids for a lot of years too so I used to take trail rides through outer Launceston for people who know it it was up in the back of Riverside and then yes obviously having spent the best part of 15 years overseas in different roles in different countries there is a degree of revaluing those sorts of experiences and for me the outdoors the the long summer days the long evenings in daylight saving and that just ability to live life outside is something that I really missed and the ocean and and being outdoors and really valuing the Australian environment. When did you first come to realise the threat that Australia as a nation and particular places around the country were was under in the global climate context? I don't know whether there was a, a light bulb moment for me beyond noticing the increasing frequency of bushfires particularly. And this is something that has affected me directly in various ways in that I've covered lots of bushfires as a journalist. We almost lost our house down the Great Ocean Road on Christmas Day 2015 when Wye River and Separation Creek partly burnt down. And so that has had a direct effect. But I think in many ways more, a lot of my reporting life has been tied to natural disasters. I have covered bushfires, floods, cyclones, typhoons, hurricanes on several continents. I've been to the Arctic. I've seen direct impact of climate change. But the other really pivotal experience, I think, was when I covered a superstorm in the Philippines in 2013, which in effect flattened a city of roughly 200,000 people. I was in the thick of the aftermath of that, and I've seen the grief and I've seen the impact, and I know how long it takes to rebuild. And it really does pull you up short and make you take these things seriously. And then when you compare it to gradual beach erosion, for example, that's happening, you know, right in front of us here in in Brighton, you kind of realise that it's the frog in the pot argument, that if you put the frog in the pot and, and turn it on to a slow boil, the frog won't jump out. If you turn it up high, the frog will jump out because it'll feel the heat. But I feel like we're the former. We're just letting ourselves boil. And there, there comes a point where you actually have to just accept the science and start taking action before it's too late. How has your journalism also given you insight into the socio-political sphere you'll be working in if you make it to Canberra? Obviously, I've been in and around politics for a long time as an observer. I've been in the Oval Office. I've, I've covered politics across Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa and Australia. And I think that It does bring that capacity to find the right experts, do the right analysis, 
ask the right questions. And the other thing that I, I think it brings is that, you know, as a, a journalist and particularly as a foreign correspondent, I've had to synthesise really complicated issues under pressure a lot. Everything from foreign policy to economics to Wall Street to business to being a rural journalist, covering things that are happening in agriculture in Australia, all sorts of things. So there's a lot of learning that's happened around how to do that, you know, how to get to the nub of the issue, how to understand what's important, what's missing. And then I think that can then be applied to the sort of problem-solving process that we're talking about. Because a lot of policy development is problem-solving. And I also think that although it's sort of arguable that I might have thought, well, why on earth would I put myself in there because it's a toxic environment in many ways... I go into it with eyes wide open. Okay, so we've seen how brutal Parliament can be. It's been a hot topic this year, right, particularly for women and those who care about how women are treated as a cohort. Have you personally experienced this as a journalist in a working relationship with Australian politicians? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, as a, as a woman, especially as a, a woman of my kind of age now, almost 50 that the events of the last few years, the Me Too movement and everything that's happened in Australia, make you reflect on the experiences that you had when you were younger and what you accepted or just dealt with or, or brushed off. So there's that. And then I think because of the kind of work that I've done in the different environments that I've operated in as well, you know, as I said, I go into this experience eyes wide open and I know that there'll be some unpleasant dealings and that it is a combative environment. I'm not a particularly combative person, but I believe I have backbone. And I also believe that I have the ability to, if not rise above or walk away from confrontation when it's not productive. But within that, I think that I have a capacity for collaboration, listening and conversation that is productive. And I think that's born in part from a a journalism career where I've spent a lot of time talking to people who have very different views than me. And I keep that front of mind with everything that I do. That you can't assume that people think the same way that you do. And in fact, most of the time they don't. And you always learn a lot when you go into a conversation with that front of mind. I mean, I covered the Trump administration. I spent four years talking to Donald Trump supporters, trying to understand them. That's one of the things that I've enjoyed most about my journalism career is actually learning from and talking to people who have different opinions and views to me. So I think that really does lend itself as well to a a crossbencher. And it lends itself to representing, to genuinely representing a community too, right? In listening to your community, what are you hearing are the main issues that concern them? Yeah, this is one of the most fun parts of being a candidate from my perspective is to just get out and talk to people. There are some not so fun parts in terms of sort of logistics and organisation of a campaign and that's all very new. But going out and talking to people in the communities comes quite easily to me and just getting that varied perspective on things. But it is interesting that Pretty much everyone I talk to has integrity and accountability at the top of their list of priorities. People feel, in general, I think in Goldstein, that they've lost control of 
their government, their democracy, that they're not being listened to and that they don't have a voice in the parliament or the party room. There's real frustration around things like rorting and pork barrelling using taxpayers' money. There's a sense that people find that really offensive. And then these issues of accountability and integrity then lay over all of the other policy pillars that I'm focused on. So transparent economic management, climate policy, really economically focused climate policy, implementing measures for safety and equality for women and girls. All of those things come back to integrity, uh, sincerity and accountability from leaders. So, yeah, if there's one overarching issue, it's that accountability, integrity issue. And I, I do think that in part that's what's driving this Voices of movement, people suddenly seeing that there's momentum behind something different that may help them actually regain some control and give them a voice that they don't have. And that's interesting because this is a Liberal electorate and has been for a long time. It's interesting that your electorate, which would have benefited from being a Liberal electorate, would feel still that there's issues of integrity and accountability. Well, I think there's a question for many people about whether they have benefited from being a safe Liberal electorate. I think there's a sense from a lot of people that we in Goldstein have been taken for granted, that we're automatically in the yes column for the LNP. And therefore, it's sort of lip service to the issues of the electorate rather than genuine engagement. And then a bit of throwing money at things like car parks and stuff like that, which is not in line with the priorities of the electorate. Evidence shows that the priorities of the electorate are exactly as I've stated them, climate integrity, equality, good economic management, to some degree COVID recovery now, obviously, aged care is a big one. There's just a sense among people that it's sort of like screaming at the moon, but we don't actually get heard on those issues. So, okay, what do you actually get from being a blue ribbon Liberal seat. This is a really smart, prosperous electorate, one of the wealthiest electorates in Australia, one of the highest levels of tertiary education in Australia, some really brilliant small business people, big business people, people who work in all sort of facets of government and bureaucracy and media and, and the arts, who are just voiceless. And so there is a, a sense of enough. Speaking of some of those things you're pointing to, where would you place yourself economically? What does the electorate want from you if you got to government? Look, I think prosperity and continuing prosperity would be among the, the top issues of the people in the electorate. There is a sense of not wanting to risk that prosperity. But I, I also think that there's a realisation among those people that the biggest risk to that prosperity now is doing nothing. And my argument would be that the status quo is higher risk than putting in an independent like me who can actually move things forward. We have no option now economically other than to quickly progress the climate agenda. 
And it's apparent that here we are sitting here at the start of 2022, that if we stick with the status quo and and nothing changes until the start of 2025, we're going to find it very difficult to hit the kind of targets that we need. And that goes to what is the future of our community? And I don't mean environmentally, that's self-evident as we sit here in front of an eroding beach, but economically, what happens to all of our small businesses? What happens to our kids when they exit high school? What jobs do they do? The numbers are all there. Deloitte's done modelling to suggest that if we continue with what we're doing now, we'd be looking at the loss of something like 900,000 jobs by 2070. GDP could fall by more than 2.5%. So that's what we're faced with versus creating a quarter of a million jobs, for example. And all of the economic benefits that go with renewable energy and particularly electrification for small business and and households who will be, if we really get on this, saving thousands of dollars a year potentially by 2030 in, in their electricity bills. And Australia then becomes the country in the world that other countries are chasing and trying to compete with. You've got so many high-profile business people from Mike Cannon-Brooks to Twiggy Forrest and others saying this is a huge opportunity for us. Grasp it. Surely we're better off being the leader on something like renewable energy with all of our options with solar and wind and open space than being the laggard and having to then chase countries that don't have the natural assets that we do. It's a no-brainer, really. But unfortunately, it's... It's a no-brainer that we've been stalled on because the issue's been weaponised for so long, and that has to stop. To me, it's just be smart. Stop making dumb decisions or not making decisions. I've, I've lived in the US where, for example, the climate is highly variable. In winter, it's absolutely freezing, you know, sub-zero temperatures. Things like heating homes are much more complicated in that kind of environment. We have the advantage of a relatively mild or moderate Mediterranean climate where we're not dealing with having to heat houses through winter in sub-zero temperatures. Okay, we have hot summers, but the solar capacity that we have can deal with our energy needs for heating and cooling in excess. And then we can divert excess electricity to transforming our iron ore into steel in this country, exporting it, becoming the hub for all the things that we're famous for in a different way. I actually think it's hugely exciting. If we could just sort of flip that switch to optimism from pessimism, start legitimately looking forward rather than back, there is so much capacity that we can do something with. But we have to be thinking beyond three-yearly election terms. Mm. We have to be thinking 100 years out. What do we want our country to look like? It's a big country. We often drive long distances. How can we ready this country to be electric vehicle friendly? Interestingly, take-up of electric vehicles in the last 12 months is at a record high in Australia, which is really good considering that it's not incentivised particularly well. And I think it shows that people are ready to switch. There are good incentives to switch over to EVs if our governments support that process. 
And look, I think it's a simple matter of getting some good brains on this. If you look at the US, for example, it's quite a good case study in that there are particular states that have really embraced electric vehicles. So it's a case of overlaying the charging stations onto a map of Australia and saying, OK, where do we need them? What range do we need these vehicles to have and how are we going to execute that? The other thing is that these technologies are jumping ahead in leaps and bounds. You've already got manufacturers or companies, investors in Silicon Valley working on self-charging vehicles. So if we just sort of open the zip on this... It enables all sorts of innovation and you'll start to see that innovation feeding on itself. I mean, the the LNP talks about a business-led model where government takes its hands out of it. I don't disagree with that, except at the start, you've got to give it a push. And once it's up and running, you'll get that positive feedback loop where it will actually feed on itself and then government can step back. But also the way that we run our homes will become more efficient. It doesn't have to happen overnight, but if everyone just got to the point where when they change over their car, their water heater, their stove, their heating system, they switched away from gas to electricity and put on rooftop solar, that would take us a long way towards where we need to get to. And it's just a mindset issue that the government needs to help create. I'd like to talk now about a few of your policies and just skip between a few of them because we can't cover everything, of course, in this time frame. But on climate, you've called for the creation of an independent climate change body. What would that look like? Yeah, I think it's to do with helping guide policy and keep everyone accountable to that policy. Do we have a model for that? We kind of had a model for that which was then dismantled under Tony Abbott. So I think is it an an independent climate change commission? How does that look? I mean, I think the nuts and bolts of that can be worked out. But in my mind, the fundamentals of it, keeping us on track with what the targets are and helping shape policy or keep policy accountable so that we hit them. And also really helping guide government on the sorts of innovation that we've talked about and how to take advantage of it. And then I think the third piece is helping develop public-private partnerships on some of these things. You know, government doesn't have to do all the heavy lifting on this. Private enterprise will do a lot of it. But there have to be ways of creating those synergies and smoothing the path for that. So I don't think it's that complicated You know, we had an independent climate commission that was dismantled. It can be rebuilt and tweaked, but it's all there. I wondered what you meant by smart financing and partnerships supporting innovation, training and revitalisation of Australian-based research and development. That's how you've put it. The federal government's given the fossil fuel industry, I think it's $10 billion over the last year or so, and it's a simple case of shifting that money across to renewable. So in other words, the government is not out of the fossil fuel industry's lives the way it proclaims it wants to be to let industry lead. Obviously, the government has its hands all over the fossil fuel industry and the fossil fuel industry is very powerful as a a lobbying entity, makes big political donations, has the ear of the government and gets a lot of money. 
both major parties are beholden to the fossil fuel industry. We need to, as Australians, recognise that that's dictating our climate policy. When you start thinking, why is our climate policy the way it is? And then you match that up to the relationship between the two major parties in the fossil fuel industry and the amount of money that's flowing in both directions, then you realise why it is how it is. So we're now in a position where we have to shift money from the fossil fuel industry across to renewables. It's not good use of taxpayers' money to be putting money into fossil fuels. Coal mines, for example, and coal-fired power stations largely will become stranded assets. So we need to actually move that money to places where it's going to be more productive and it's actually going to take us forward. And in the end, as I said earlier, if we electrify our economy and are producing electricity in excess of our basic domestic needs, then that energy gets channeled to larger-scale manufacturing and production of all all sorts of things. And then we become a global hub for large and small-scale manufacturing and exports. In terms of equality, you highlight the shortfall in government kindness, government regard for the First Nations community in this country and that custodial relationship to our environment. Why is that systemic disregard a problem and how can various Australian communities embed more understanding and recognition of a relationship which is both ancient and contemporary? Well, in many ways I think it's the same as lots of things in Australia right now and also the world, that everything becomes combative and there's not enough just simple respect and listening to each other. And I think in the end, developing and repairing our relationship with First Nations people is about having those conversations. And sometimes they're difficult conversations. And I think that knee-jerk political responses to those conversations are really unhelpful. The discussion about an Indigenous voice to Parliament, for example, is a, a classic case where it was twisted into the threat of a third House of Parliament that would have undue influence on decision-making in our country. And that's not what it is at all. It's to do with having sincere, honest Indigenous advice underpinned by history, needs and, and views in the First Nations community to inform policy among policymakers, direct to Parliament, not through the bureaucracy. That would be a huge step forward for us, I think, because it just opens the way for much more direct conversations that are not sanitised by bureaucrats and then perhaps less prone to becoming overcomplicated. And to broaden that out, you particularly mentioned listening to and engaging directly with people of colour not just Indigenous, but the many different communities that make up this one Australian community. Why does that need stating, do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I wish it didn't need stating, but I, I feel like, and many of the conversations I've had over the last couple of months have exposed this, that people of colour, people of different cultural backgrounds, people with special needs women, First Nations people need to be front of mind in every policy conversation that you have because they're affected differently by the policy and there can be unintended consequences of the policy. Religious groups as well, potentially. 
So it's a case of looking at the policy that's being considered and then speaking to people who are different to you to say, how's this going to affect you? What are the pitfalls in this? And to just also recognise gaps. One of the deeper conversations that I've had about this is around women of colour and their experience of sexual harassment and their lack of power in workplaces, which is very different to that of Caucasian women like me, who may be less powerful than men in the workplace, but are vastly more powerful than women of colour. So it's just that kind of consideration around the conversations that we're having about policy to say, well, it might affect me in this way. It might affect you in in that way. How's it going to affect this person and this person and this person? So consulting with our community here in Goldstein, consulting with people of different backgrounds who've had particular experiences, consulting with experts, and then synthesising that information into something that will broadly work for everyone. On integrity as a policy, as a journalist, you know the risks involved for whistleblowers. How important are whistleblowers to creating government with integrity? And how does thinking about those kind of details put meat on the bones for an integrity commission? Yeah, we should absolutely have whistleblower protection. And to me, it actually goes to the core of what kind of country we want to be. If we don't protect whistleblowers, then I don't think we're being true to ourselves. If we're not putting ourselves in a position where people can come forward and tell the truth about something that's happening that's wrong, then we're we're sort of, we've got a problem right from the beginning. I think there are other pieces to that as well. Transparency in political donations, especially large donations from from companies and corporates. Truth in political advertising is another example. And then there's the broader need for a commission, not only with teeth, but a commission that's well resourced and that can actively pursue investigations and is resourced to do that. So all of those pieces come under the broad heading of integrity, but they're not all to do with the commission itself. Some of it would be legislative around some of those other issues that I've talked about. But protection of whistleblowers is really central to all of that. One last question for you then, as we finish up. Given that you reside in a blue ribbon Liberal seat, why did you choose not to join that party and try and change from within? Because I'm not party political. I'm a swinging voter, always have been. And I think having been an ABC journalist for almost 30 years, I really had trained myself to not be aligned and to try to be as much as possible really objective and just sort of rigorous in my analysis of particular positions of politicians, not only in Australia but also overseas, and to have that open mind of, okay, how would that affect me? How would that affect other people? What are the holes in it? Without having any sort of ideological bent in either direction, if you like. So I never could have run for either of the major parties. I couldn't have worked for either of the major parties. I I just couldn't align myself. But that said, I really did and had been feeling a sort of need to do something more, to be more than a journalist, to 
step in to participate to try to change something from the inside. So I'd been grappling with that having left the ABC. Like, where am I best able to have impact? And then this popped up and it was like initially, I don't know if I want to put myself in that situation because I know how that will be. But it's also a good fit for someone who's a lifelong swinging voter who has rigorously analysed policy and asked a lot of questions and synthesised a lot of complicated information to sit on the crossbench and do that for a job. So the fit is quite neat. The fit is quite neat. We might leave it there. Thank you so much, Zoe Daniel. It's been fascinating. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Zoe Daniel, independent candidate for the seat of Goldstein, here with us on The Independence, a podcast from Climate 200. And you can learn more about Zoe and how to get involved in her campaign at her website, zoedaniel.com.au. And if you want to see real action on climate, integrity and gender equality, head over to climate200.com.au and chip in to support this fresh wave of independence in the upcoming election. Don't forget to tell your neighbours, friends and family about this series. There are lots more one-on-one deep-dive conversations with standing independents across the nation. I'm Gretchen Miller. See you next time. Collective.